Uh, hey, LifePoint, I have uh, three things I want to share with you before we get into God's Word this morning. And the first is that I miss you. Um, preaching to a camera and an empty room is not my idea of a good time, uh, although I'm glad that we have this technology to be able to stay connected. I'm so looking forward to the time when our remodel is completed, uh, the bands are lifted, and, and we're just able to all gather together uh, again to worship the Lord together. And in the meantime, I really hope that you're staying connected uh, to your life group, to uh, maybe your ministry team, and to other friends here at LifePoint. It's so important that we stay connected during this time, and we really have to be proactive uh, about that. Second, we're we're coming to the end of our current fiscal year here at LifePoint on June 30th. Uh, we have some information to share with you regarding the status of our remodel, uh, our current overall financial status. So be watching uh, your mailbox for a letter from me, your email for a letter from me, um, and uh, be watching your inbox for a video message from me uh, in the coming days. For now, let me just say that your faithfulness in giving uh, continues to be essential even during this COVID-19 shutdown. And so many of you have been very, very faithful, and so we're grateful for that. The third thing is that our next sermon series will begin two weeks from now on June 28th. We're going to be studying the book of Philippians together. And so if you want to read ahead, uh, please do that. Uh, it's a short letter. It doesn't take very long to read. And I'd encourage you to read it maybe in uh, several different translations. It's a short read. And uh, you can do that. You, you can access a variety of translations on a website like BibleGateway.com. And uh, so I'm excited for that and uh, just looking forward to uh, what God is going to do in the coming days. This morning, we've come to the second to the last message in our current series, Simple Virtues for Complex Times, which is rooted in the Apostle Paul's New Testament letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia, verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's pray together before we continue on. Father God, we pray this morning that uh, you would be present with us here uh, in this place and in every place where this message is viewed. Lord, these are such unusual times. We ask for your abiding presence as you have promised it to us. And help us to be aware of it. Help us to live in it. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and teach us uh, and help us to understand the things that your Spirit wants to say to us individually uh, and to us as a church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Earlier this week, Sue Sloan posted this timely and really memorable piece from a woman named Leilani Alger, whom I believe must be a kindergarten teacher. Maybe you saw it. She wrote, here's how I think requiring masks would work in kindergarten. I'm sure I would say all of these things. Please don't snap Susie's mask in her face. You should not be using your mask as a slingshot. Please put it on your face. 
Your mask should be on your face, not on the back of your head. Your mask is not a necklace, bracelet, or any other form of jewelry. Please do not chew on your mask. I'm sorry your mask is wet, but that's what happens when you lick the inside of your mask. I'm sorry you sneezed, but wipe out the snot as well as you can. No, you cannot blow your nose in your mask. Why is your mask soaking wet? You just came back from the bathroom, and you put it back on your face after you dropped it? I'm sorry you broke the elastic on your mask by seeing how far the band would stretch, but now you will have to hold the mask on your face or use this duct tape. Please take the mask off your eyes and watch where you're walking. I don't care if you can see through it. Please take the mask off of your pencil and stop twirling it. I know the mask fits over your pants like a knee pad, but please take it off of your leg and put it on your face. What do you mean you tried to eat your lunch through your mask? Please do not share your mask or trade masks. I don't care if you like their mask better. I'm sorry, but your mask is not school appropriate. We're not comparing our masks to other kids' masks. Everyone's mask is unique and special. No, you cannot decorate your mask instead of doing your work. I don't care if you have a Sharpie. You are not a pirate. Please take your mask off your eye. Try to get the gum off as much as you can. Please do not use your mask to pick your nose. (laughs) I'm sorry you tripped, but that's what happens when you put your feet inside the elastic of your mask. No, your mask does not make it hard to get your work done. Your mom will need to get you a new mask since you chewed a hole in that one. Why is there a shoe print on your mask? No, you cannot eat the snow through your mask. I don't care if you were in art class and being creative. We do not decorate our masks. We do not bean other kids in the face with a ball. No, their mask does not make it hurt. Please do not plug your nose holes with your mask. Who's making that noise? I'm sorry your ponytail is stuck. That's what happens when you see how many times you can wrap it around your mask. Oh, I'm sorry your breath stinks in your mask. Maybe we should all try to brush better. Please take those things out of your mask. No, you are not a chipmunk. (laughs) And here's one to parents. I'm sorry to tell you, but your child thought their mask made them a superhero, and so they tried to fly off the jungle gym at recess. (laughs) Ah, the life of a teacher, right? I recently had a conversation with a young mother who expressed her frustration over the fact that her three-year-old son was resisting all of her efforts at potty training. And for him, the whole enterprise was nothing more than a bother and an inconvenience. It just requires more of him than he's willing to give at the moment, and she was willing to acknowledge it represents an assertion of his will over hers. I was reminded of the fact that my children's first grade teacher constantly coached her students to become what she called self-managers. In fact, she set clearly defined benchmarks for them to achieve the status of self-manager over the course of the year and rewarded them when they'd established a pattern of behavior that consistently met each of those benchmarks. And why did she do that? Because one of the marks of childhood and of immaturity in general, 
is a lack of self-control. All of us hopefully understand that achieving self-control in some specific areas of behavior is among the essential developmental tasks of childhood. Similarly, bearing the fruit of self-control is also a developmental task in the life that is lived in submission to and dependence upon God. And I want to take some time this morning to do something I haven't done in the previous messages, which is really to help us understand the broader context of of Paul's comments surrounding this listing of virtues that compose what he called the fruit of the Spirit. And let's begin in Galatians 5.16, where Paul wrote, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Notice that, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, I just want to pause right there for just a moment and define some terms. Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What is the flesh? And the first thing we need to understand about that is that he's not talking only or even primarily about our physical bodies. The Bible never teaches that the physical body itself is evil. In Paul's vocabulary, the flesh is the self-will of each person in rebellion against and resistance to the will of God. That is then expressed uh, not just through the actions of our physical bodies, but also in our hearts, our minds, our affections, our values, our attitudes, and our speech. And the means of overcoming the temptation to gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul tells us, is to walk by the Spirit. So what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? At that moment that you, by faith, transfer your trust from your personal performance, from your religiosity, from the presumptuous belief that there's anything at all that, that you can do on your own to satisfy the debt uh, that you owe because of your sin, and, and you center it exclusively on what Christ accomplished for you by his death on the cross, the Bible tells us that God the Holy Spirit indwells you. That is, he takes up permanent residence in your life and he begins to transform you from the inside out. He begins to clean house, if you will. And in that moment of believing, by faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven once and for all. You're rescued from the kingdom of darkness. Your citizenship is transferred uh, to the kingdom of God's Son. You you pass from death to eternal life. You're recreated within, and you're invested with an entirely new nature. You're adopted as a child of God. You have a, a new birth, a new life, a new identity, a new citizenship, a new hope, and a new destiny. And the presence of the indwelling Spirit of God is increasingly evidenced by the transformed character He's producing in you and demonstrating or expressing through you. Nevertheless, Paul says we are and we 
will be in a spiritual battle, this internal spiritual struggle from the moment of spiritual rebirth to the day that we die or the day that Christ comes, whichever comes first. Notice verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, capital S, Spirit of God. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. See, what that means is that this side of heaven, if the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life, if you've trusted in Christ, you won't be able to do everything the Spirit of God prompts you to do because of the downward tug of your flesh. Neither will you take as much joy as you once did in fulfilling the desires of your flesh because of the conviction of sin that the Spirit works in you. Writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, the Apostle Paul described the locus or the the center of that internal conflict, which is the ongoing struggle to throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, he writes, let the Spirit... Renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. You're to take off that old self, the person that you were, like you would take off an old dirty garment. When I've been working out in the garden and I come back in the house, my wife makes me get undressed in the garage and she brings me my robe because I'm dirty. Paul says, take off that, put off that old self like a dirty garment and put on the new self that God is now by his spirit creating you to be. That right there is the choice that needs to be made in every moment of every day. The writer of Hebrews said of Moses in chapter 11 that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. Well, let's be honest, shall we? Sin can be very pleasurable. The allure and the enticement of sin has to be dealt with in the power of the Spirit of God and guided by the Word of God. When we do sin, and when we fail, each of us may be inclined to say, I just couldn't help myself. But of course, you could have. See, Moses was confronted with a choice that had to be made between the luxuries and the power and the pleasures that would have been his, that were his, as an adopted grandson of the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, and his true identity as a Hebrew, an Israelite. And Moses chose what was true and permanent over what was untrue and temporal. See, when you and I sin, whatever the object of our mistaken bid for pleasure may be, the truth is that we chose that because we loved that more than we love God and His will for our lives. Sin is idolatry. It's all about who or what you're worshiping. Either you'll worship the the idol of your flesh, your own appetites and desires, or you'll worship the living God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to make final payment in full at the cross 
so that your sin could be forgiven and you could live in the freedom of the children of God. Sin is idolatry because when we choose to serve the flesh, what we're saying to God is that he's He's just not enough for us. And so we'll need to find our satisfaction somewhere in something or someone other than him. So every time I willfully sin, what I'm declaring is, God, I, I can't be satisfied in you. I choose to find my satisfaction elsewhere. The boundaries that you've established for my life are simply too restrictive. Therefore, I know from your word and from the internal promptings of your Holy Spirit that you would like me to do something else, but, but, and that's the internal conversation, the internal struggle between the Spirit of God and our flesh, our self-centered and self-serving sin nature that, that each of us faces every moment of every day. Moving on in verses 16 to 21, Paul now lists what he calls the works of the flesh, the works of the flesh. And what they are is the, are the natural self-evident outcomes of living to serve ourselves. It's what comes out of each of us naturally without our ever even trying. Verse 16, now the, um, I'm sorry, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Things like these. So it's not a complete list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You might ask, do you think we're really that bad? Yes. And that's what's ultimately wrong with the famous advice, the familiar advice to just be yourself. In relation to sin, we're like Tim McGraw. He's saying, I like it, I love it, I want some more of it. Paul says in the second half of verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, sin may cause you to feel like you've died and gone to heaven. But the reality is that unless God rescues you from the penalty of your sin, you're already dead and on the highway to hell. One of the things I've come to understand in life is that each of us does what we really want to do. And so if our desires are all given to the deeds of the flesh, then what we desperately need is a new life a new operating system, a new motivation, a new source of power. We need God the Father to forgive us of our sin through the sacrifice of God the Son, and we need God the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out and to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul brings the good news in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I'm going to revisit that next week in the concluding message in this series. The fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit of God alone can produce in the hearts and lives of redeemed sinners. It can't be produced by mere strength of will. 
It can't be produced by external moral influences or more rules or more laws. This morning in the time I have left, I want to focus your thoughts on the final segment of the fruit, which is, of course, self-control. Self-control. The word that's translated self-control here in verse 23 is inkratia. Inkratia. It means literally dominion within. That would be a literal translation. That is to be ruled from the inside. It means self-mastery, self-restraint. Secular Greek uses it of the virtue of a ruler who never lets his private interests influence the way he governs his people. I think we could say we need more self-controlled politicians today, don't we? It was in that light that William Barclay defined self-control as the virtue which makes a man so master himself that he's fit to be the servant of others. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 1, 7, and 8 regarding the qualifications of an overseer or, or an elder in the church. For, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In the next chapter, he he says that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I had to pause on that one because I I think I might be in that category now. Older men. What about older women or younger women? Yeah, them too. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Well, what about younger men? Ditto. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. See, self-control is expected to be forming in the life of every believer, every member of the family of God, young or old, men or women. See, I wonder if there's anything out of control in your life. Oh, I don't know. How about your cultivation of your personal spiritual life or your finances, your morality, your sexuality, your physical health? What about your relationship to food or alcohol or prescription drugs or recreational drugs? How about your marriage or your family? Are you are you self-controlled there? What about your relationship to your work, your, your relationship to those with whom you work? Anything out of control there? What about your relationships with others in the church? Let me ask you, what might choosing self-control in any of these other areas look like for you? The Bible seems to focus on three primary areas in which we are to be careful to exercise self-control. 
And they include our bodies, our emotions, and our thoughts. With regard to our bodies, the strongest emphasis on self-control in the New Testament, and really in the Bible uh, at large, is on our sexuality. And with that in mind, let me take you to Genesis 39. You, you may or may not be familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, or Israel, and his wife Rachel. And Joseph was hated by his brothers. And uh, to make a long story short, they sold him to some slave traders from the land of Midian. And those slave traders took him south to Egypt, where he was purchased by a man named Potiphar, who happened to occupy the high office of the captain of the guard to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself. Picking up the story at chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. The Potiphar was being blessed, and the connection of his newfound prosperity with the presence and the work of Joseph was not lost on him. He trusted Joseph implicitly. And that set the stage for what came next. Reading on, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good-looking guy with a great bod. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So Joseph's a handsome dude, and Potiphar's wife was a sexually aggressive woman. Now just imagine the circumstances. Every day, Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and so is she. And he's not around. And every day she's coming on to him, throwing herself at him, giving him permission to have sex with her. And day after day, time after time, Joseph says, no, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph was keenly aware of his accountability to Potiphar and to God. And he exercised incredible self-control. 
Verse 11, but one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. Here was her moment of opportunity. They were alone. No one else was there, just the two of them in the house. She may have said, well, no one will ever know. But Joseph knew of three people who would know. She would know. He would know. And have it on his conscience. And God would know. So what did Joseph do? The latter part of verse 12. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. It's possible that Joseph ran out of that house stark naked. He didn't stop and pray about what God's will might be. He, he didn't meditate his way out of her house. He fled. And sometimes self-control means that you have to leave some things behind. Well, what happened next? She accused him of attempted rape. Kind of predictable, right? He was thrown into prison for a few years. But God continued, even there, to bless him. See, sometimes self-control means you have to stand on your integrity and take whatever hit comes. Now go with me to Second Samuel 11, and let's compare Joseph's self-control to King David's. Second Samuel 11, beginning at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. You know, verse 1 always strikes me with such force. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. In other words, at the time when kings go out to battle, David the king sent his army and he stayed home and watched porn on the rooftop. Here's his first failure of self-control. He wasn't where he should have been and he was doing what he shouldn't have been doing. Instead, he exercised his power as king, banked on no one knowing, and had sex with the wife of Uriah, one of his most valiant and trusted generals. Here's his second failure of self-control. But David knew, and she knew, and God knew, and eventually everyone would know, and now you know. Everyone knows down to this day. David didn't flee. And Bathsheba got pregnant. To cover his tracks, he ordered that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, be killed in battle. 
a third egregious failure of self-control. And later he would lie again, a fourth failure of self-control. David eventually repented that the Bible says that the sword would never depart from his house. And what you see as you read on in the scriptures is that the ripples of consequence just kept coming in David's life, in his family, and in all of Israel. See, temptation may come, but in that moment when temptation and circumstances and opportunity combine, when those things coincide, look out, look out. Paul wrote, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Your primary personal challenge to self-control of your physical body may not be in the area of sexual temptation. Maybe it's food or drink or drugs or exercise or something else. Self-control matters. Paul said that our bodies are the dwelling places of the Holy Spirit and that we should therefore glorify God in our bodies. God's Word also calls us to self-control in the area of our emotions. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, take those negative, self-centered emotions and put them away from you. Get distance from them. Take dominion, which we saw as the definition of self-control. Take dominion over your emotions. Examine them. Explore their source. See them for what they are. Consider their logical outcomes. And decide which ones you're going to allow to affect your conduct. Easy to say. Very difficult to do. We're currently seeing in the streets of Seattle and cities across the United States the destructive results of emotions out of control. And that's why the book of Proverbs urges us, above all else, guard your affections, your emotions, your values. Get control of those for the influence everything else in your life. Finally, we're to exercise self-control in our thought life, the life of our minds. And on this subject, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for the weapons of our warfare, this struggle between the spirit and the flesh that we talked about earlier, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So your thought life controls your life. You and I are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. For years, I, I wondered exactly what that expression really means. But here's what I think it means most basically. To take something captive is to place it under arrest, to book it, to document it, to investigate it, 
to submit it to the scrutiny, the testing, the trial of God's Word. See, in classrooms across the United States, as well as on television and media, we and our children are are being asked to accept arguments and lofty-sounding opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. So what we need, children, youth, and adults, is a thorough knowledge of God's Word that will enable us to continue, or to counter, rather, those arguments and those presumptuous opinions and to avoid deception. And this is another absolutely essential area of self-control for every believer. You must be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who is coming to understand the fullness of God's Word. And the way you do that is get by getting your nose and your mind into the Bible. See, here's something I know for sure from experience. It's hard to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if I am filling my mind with things that are contrary to that obedience. So I need to exercise self-control in the television and movies I watch. I need to exercise self-control in what I read and where I go on the Internet. I need to exercise self-control in the philosophies that I allow myself to accept without examination. I need to exercise self-control in my political opinions, who I align myself with and, and who I vote for. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who wrote, Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reach a character, uh, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Proverbs 25:28 gives us this graphic picture, and I'm going to close with this. It says, A man without self-control is like a city that is broken down, broken into, and left without walls. In ancient times, a city that was without walls was entirely defenseless. And the picture that the writer of this proverb is painting for us is is of a life that's been broken into, a life that's been pillaged and left unable to protect itself. Self-control is like that. It's a protective factor in our lives. The beginning of self-control, the Bible tells us, is to be brought under the control of Christ. And when you're under Christ's control, You receive his spirit, which is a spirit of power and a spirit of love and a spirit of self-control. Let Jesus Christ have full control of your life. Let him make you what he wants you to be. See, if you're trusting in Christ today, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So allow God's grace to to have its full effect in your life. If you're not a believer today, here's here's something I, I just want you to reflect on as we close. Religion says, become by your self effort what you are not. Become by your self effort what you are not. 
The operative word in religion in general is do. But Christianity, by contrast, says, become by grace what you truly are, because God is recreating you to be that person. God's all about it. And it began at the cross. The operative word in Christianity is done. And maybe you've listened to this message today and you said, man, I'm really lacking in self-control. I, and I don't know Jesus and I don't know where I'm going in my life. I want to invite you today to, to place your trust in Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of joining a club, signing a contract. It's a matter of simply transferring your trust from from all the things that you might do to what has already been done at the cross. You may not understand everything. You may not be really sure. But here, here's what God will do is if, if you invite him to come in and, and show himself to you, he'll do it. He'll respond in that moment without hesitation. He'll respond. If you seek him, you'll find him when you seek him with all of your heart. So I invite you today to trust in Christ and to begin the journey to becoming mature and self-controlled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you that by your spirit, You're able to take these words and apply them as they are needed in each of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd bring conviction, that you'd bring obedience, that you might bring new life to those who don't know you yet in their lives, are not sure that their sins are forgiven, that they're the new person that that you want to make them to be. And so, Lord, I, I pray for that person and those people today that they might trust in you. I pray for those who who may be in their lives, may be Christians who are um, are wandering and uh, who are backslidden in their lives. And I pray, Father, that, that you might draw them again to yourself and renew that relationship. Lord, I pray for our church. And, and Lord, ask that uh, even during this time, you would continue to bind us together so that when we come back together, we'll be stronger than we were before we, before we were separated by this COVID-19 shutdown. That we'll be stronger and that we'll be more committed to each other and more committed to the mission that you've called us to fulfill now here in East Olympia. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, LifePoint. Have a great week.